That's you guys. Give yourselves a hand. Well, that's not convincing. Help me out a little bit. Give yourselves a hand. Sound like it's uh, my children trying to convince them to eat for the day. You need to eat. You need to eat. You got to always convince them. All right. Okay. Well, we have been going on for this uh, sermon series called We Are Grace Church. And for the last, this is our last week, we've been talking about um, the importance of why we exist as the church, as the church that God has established through his son and through the apostles and prophets. And we were talking about the first week about how we are priceless and how important it for us to understand that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He is the priceless chief cornerstone, and he has built upon himself the church, which is the prophets and the apostles, and then he built us upon them as well, the Jews and the Gentiles, and we're priceless in Christ. And then we talked um, the second week about we are influencers, how we want to influence those around us, how God used Paul in the church um, in, in the, around the Thessalonians and the church of Thessalonica, and how he influenced like a mother would influence a child, and how we are to be influencers in all of our areas where we work, in our neighborhoods, and with our family members. And then we went on to the third week where we talked about we are his masterpiece. We're perfectly created by God in Christ to do the work that he's called us for good works. But we're created as his masterpiece. And sometimes we don't feel like we're his masterpiece, but he's called us too. And so that's important for us to understand as well. And then last week we talked about unity, about equipping the church, about the importance of equipping the church to build the church and the unity of, of coming together in the faith. So that when we're unified, we, we talked about the grace of God, the gift of God that he's given to us. And we talked about how important it is for us to know that we have leaders that guide us. And that we are to grow in maturity and go and share Christ with others. That brings unity in the body of Christ. That builds the church. Well, this week we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, last week is we're going to talk about uh, this last week we are eager to do good. And as the church, as God's church, we want to be eager to do good. And we'll talk a little bit about where that does derive from, the good that, that we have that should be uh, performed through us is not good works in order to gain salvation, but the salvation we have, we want it to be responded in good works. But I want to share a few things uh, here and see if you can help me out. I want you to shout out if you'd like um, whether these statements are good or bad, Okay, if, uh, if I said a child screams at the top of his or her voice in order to get mom's attention in the middle of the supermarket, is that good or bad? Bad. Okay, good. Okay, good that you got that. It's bad. A kid drops glass or any kind of glassware, you know, on the kitchen floor, and one of your children are walking across the kitchen floor as it's all broken on the floor. Is that good or bad? Bad, bad. Okay, all right. Well, your child is arguing with your eight-year-old, and he's a boy, and he thinks he's a boxer, and he wants to see how hard he can hit and land a punch on his sister, and he does. Is that good or bad? You can see I've had some experience with that. Okay. My son's probably back there saying, Dad. Um, or you find, a, you find out that a friend is lying to a certain warehouse store 
that he serves in the military in order to get a discount, but he never served in the military. Is that bad? It's very bad. Okay, we don't want that. Or when I was at a store a couple of, about a month ago or so, I'm sitting there looking at some clothes, trying to see what I can do, get some new clothes, and I see an older couple, just about two or three, uh, about maybe 20 feet from me, and they're arguing. And the wife is making, is letting the husband have it. I mean, it's like, almost like, wow. I'm like sitting there going, boy, man, my wife never talks to me that way. And she's giving it to him. And he's sitting there, a poor older man. He's like, well, you're like that too. And she's like, and you're like this, and you're like that, and you're like this, and you're like that too. And I'm like, wow, that's embarrassing. I'm looking at, looking at the shirt, kind of saying to myself. And then they're walking over towards, you know, to, to uh, just to the counter. And they're talking, oh, hi, how's it going? Everything okay? And they're smiling and laughing. I'm like, Wow, what just happened? That's bad. I mean, that's really bad. I mean, it's like, wow, how'd you turn your body, look towards the counter, and you start smiling and laughing after you gave it to them? And sometimes what we recognize is that what we consider is good is a subjective truth. Because what we set as a standard as good, even as Christians, we have to be careful because the Bible tells us what's good. See, God, when he created, he said it was good. There's nothing better than good with God. Or when we understand that God and his objective truth, that is the standard of good. And sometimes we have to understand, too, as we are conducting ourselves with attitudes and behaviors throughout our days, we have to be careful what we set as a standard as considered good. We have ethnic backgrounds. We have social backgrounds. Even teenagers, when you're hanging out with your friends, you create a standard within in your cliques what's good and what's not good. Sometimes when we share stories with each other and it becomes gossip, we justify it by saying, well, that's okay because we're just kind of encouraging each other or gossip becomes the standard of good because it's good to gossip because gossip brings us together. And so we have to be careful what we understand is good because according to the scriptures, we know God is good. And we understand in the scriptures that sound doctrine is good. Because the sound doctrine is the content of faith, the gospel, that Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the sound doctrine, theology is good. Establishing or establishment of leaders in the church is good. We talked about that last week. Experiencing trials and tribulations with the purpose to grow closer to God and please him is good. Godly conduct, attitude of Christ is good. But what we have to understand is we have to be eager to do what is good. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Titus. So I want to encourage you, if you would, open up your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. As, as we look at that, it's a short book of three chapters, so we will be talking about other information in the book. So let me give you a little bit of a background in it. Paul was admonishing Titus, a genuine son in the faith, similar to Timothy, Chapter 1, verse 4, and a partner and fellow worker, 2 Corinthians 8, 23. So Titus was planting churches on the island of Crete, 160 miles long, 35 miles wide at its widest point. Titus was a pastor. Now, Paul was a, was a church planter setting up pastors, church planters, and he was an overseer. 
So Titus was a pastor, and he was being directed by Paul to appoint elders at each of their locations. There were house churches located on this island, so he was setting them up. And he was also being, inf- he was also being formed, Titus was from Paul, false teachers that were misleading and deceiving believers in the church, chapter 1, 10 through 11. Now remember, as I've been mentioning the last few weeks, a false teacher is one who speaks truth but lives different from what they speak. Can you imagine like when you um, have friends, um, they might speak the truth, but they live a lie. They might say what's right to do, but they say, don't do, don't do what I do, what I say, don't do what I do. How many of us have that struggle and challenge in the body of Christ when we see that? Well, Paul was having that in the first century. He had to prepare the leaders to see that that was happening. And these so-called false teachers were representing themselves as ones who were in Christ. So it's nothing more difficult than having Christians that say they're in Christ, but they're living a different life. And this is in attitudes and behaviors. This is in the way we conduct ourselves. This isn't even in heinous, evil thinking. But in chapter 1, he highlights some of the things that the Cretans were doing. And how we as Christians who are to live to do what is good and to believe the standard of what is good, how are we to, to live that? How are we to reflect that? Well, see, Paul was challenging him. He was challenging Titus to appoint these leaders and to teach the people to, to, to be in the church according to, he was teaching them to have the people to live according to sound doctrine. The vital point was made in chapter 1.1. It says, the knowledge of truth in according to godliness. So you have the truth, you have sound doctrine, but what good is if that we have sound doctrine but no one's living by it? What good is if you have the truth but no one sees anyone living in conduct that's godly? Or upright. So we're going to learn a little bit about that. But that's what Paul was writing about. And the Cretans were known as liars, chapter 1, verse 12, even by their own poets. They were claiming, it's one thing when someone might call you a liar who doesn't know you, but when your own people call you a liar, boy, you got trouble. Because if they're calling you a liar, then there's something about your conduct that's not meeting up to what you call as truth. Unless you set a standard, a subjective standard, that's in gossiping and lying, which we can all do if we're not careful. And so it's like we, we understand that the Cretans were struggling. So here's what Paul said this. He said, here is another vital point. He says, in the hope of eternal life in chapter 1, which God, who does not lie, verse 2 of chapter 1. Why did Paul mention this? Because he mentions that because God is the opposite of lying. He's truth. Remember, the father of lies is Satan himself. And if you look in any kind of Hollywood culture, lying is a standard of good. You lie enough to where you think it's actually good because you're withholding information, withholding events, so you don't want to cause anyone to struggle. You withhold information, pertinent information that someone needs to know because it would help them in growing in character. We as a people of God want to do the same because when the truth, the truth is to be spoken in love, we want to know that God represents that truth. God is truth. Father is truth. Jesus is truth. The Spirit is truth. So Paul is often saying this throughout his his letters to establish the church. And we today have to be reminded on a daily basis how important it is for us to surrender to the word of God, which is the word of truth. So as we look at this, look with me to chapter 1, verse 9, as we just set the foundation here today. It says this, he must hold firm the leader, the elder, the leader. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine 
and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So it's the job, it's a God who appoints the leader to live by it. I have told you this already. I will not call you to do anything I don't expect myself to do. So I'm, I've got to live according to the truth. All of us as elders in this church need to live according to the truth. The staff needs to live according to the truth because we're representatives of leaders in this church. And if we're not doing that, we can't call other people to do that. If we're not living according to sound doctrine, then we can't contradict anyone. But if we contradict anyone, we do it in love according to sound doctrine, not according to our opinion. See, if I speak, I speak not according to my opinion, but according to the word of God. So when someone says to you, well, that's your opinion that people are being separated from God for eternity if they don't trust in Christ. So that's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says. If it were my opinion, I'd tell you, go live your life the way you want to. In my flesh, I would tell you that. But I don't live in my flesh. I live in Christ. See, I'm, I, I've been bought with a price. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, as Paul said. So it's important for us to understand that the truth has to be lived out through us in order to be the billboard of what is good. It's not good if we claim to know the truth, but we don't live by it. And so it's important for us to be eager to know the truth, and it's important for us to live it out. So the faithful message is not simply taught, it's lived out. So that was a calling to a leader, and it's a calling to each one of us. So as we look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, let me just share this with you. Uh, Let me read this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, awaiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of God, the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people from his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if you have your worship guides, your folders there, and we want to look at the first point here. It says, here are three questions I want to ask. Why should we do good? So we have to see the motivation of why we should, should do good. I, I'm sure as Christians we ask that question. Why do I need to do good? I think good is that I get what I need and what I want. I don't, I don't think, why do we have to do good according to what God says? Well, let me tell you why. It's important for us to grasp this. The first point is he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself. As we look here in verse 14, I'm going to start at 14, go back to 11 and kind of come back down. But look at verse 14. He said, who gave himself for us. He sacrificed himself. In fact, we see Jesus mentioned that uh, one time in Mark 10, 45. We see this. It says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's good. And to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the world, us, in our flesh, we want to be served. The Bible says we are to be servants and serve. Jesus said it himself. He didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, Yeshua, Curious Lord, Yahweh came and said, I don't need to be served. I need to serve. The Father sent the Son. He wouldn't have come on his own initiative. He came because the Father sent him to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now watch that for, because that preposition in the English, you might think that's just a preposition, but in the Greek it's a very important word there. Because the word for, as mentioned here in two, uh, Titus 2, chapter, four, or chapter 2, verse 14, it says, who gave himself for us. That for 
means this. It's an uper in the Greek, which means in behalf of. And in behalf of, I see it this way, that Jesus, he didn't come to die on behalf of us. He came to die for sin. Now watch now. The Father demands holiness. And if he demands holiness, someone perfect had to die in the place of sin. Jesus is our substitutionary atonement who died in place for sin. We're going to see that in our communion time, that we understand the, 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 the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is we should celebrate it. What we need to celebrate what's good is that God sent his son to sacrifice for us. So he, he died in behalf of us, but in behalf of sin, which now we benefit from it. Because as sinners, when we come to Christ, we benefit because now we're no longer in the kingdom of darkness, the light of his son. We're in the light of his son. We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We come into the light of his son because God did that for us through Christ. And it's good. And so that's where that sound doctrine comes in because he does that for us. And so even here, he had, it's another Greek word that says in place of. So Jesus saying he, his life was a ransom for many or in place of many. For sin. Also, we see here in Galatians 2.20, Paul states this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself uper me. For me, uper. And so it's important for us to understand that Jesus came to die for sin. And the beauty of it is a great thing because now because of it, we are benefited by trusting in him. Now, the second thing is he rescued us. He rescued us. Look again at verse 14. It says, for, he had, for us to redeem us. The word is rescue. Um, it gives the idea of setting free. He, it's the idea of setting us from and liberating us from an oppressed situation. So you and I, we were helpless and hopeless in our sin. There was no debt that we could pay in that. It's an insurmountable debt. We could never live, to make, live to, in this world, in this lifetime. No, so many years in life couldn't even make up for it. It's a debt that is just, it, I can't even calculate it. Because the sin debt is a debt against holiness. And we've missed the mark. We're imperfect. And God expects perfection. And if he expects perfection, we're imperfect. We can't pay that debt. That's why Jesus had to set us free from the bondage of sin. He set us free from the slave market of sin. Agorizin in Greek, it means to take us out of a market of sin. Because so many slaves of that time in the Roman time were being bought for their service. And so that's where God is saying, I'm going to pull you out. Although you are deemed guilty, I'm going to declare you innocent. And so, glory to God, what a great thing. But you ever wonder when you're in a hopeless and helpless situation in your sanctification? You ever think this in, the, in, your, in your struggle, in the belly I call the belly of struggle? Now, you may struggle. Maybe you won't go to doubt. Maybe you will. But you ever kind of say, okay, Lord, I think this is the big one. I think this is the one you're stumped too. I think this is the one, Lord, that you just can't seem to figure out. This is a tough one, Lord. I really don't know how you're going to get me out of this one. I'm really in it now. I don't see how you can forgive me for this one. Lord, I know it's really, really deep. And Lord, I think you're going to turn your head on this one. I don't think you're going to be able to get me out of this one. Sometimes we might think that. 
Sometimes it's possible in the midst of that heavy, difficult struggle where you feel like you're living in bondage, you can't get out, it's possible that that could happen. I know there are people out there wondering, can God get me out of this? I can assure you, according to the word of God, according to what he has already established, he can liberate you from an oppressed situation. If he already has done it, he can do it again because he's done it in the most oppressed situation. I mean, he's done it with sin. We were separated at one point from God forever, but Jesus intervened and he died as a perfect sacrifice. So we, when we trust in him and we believe in the person and work of Christ, he sets us free from the impossible to make it possible. The God who can do all things. Now look back at verse 11 now. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, we understand the grace of God. We've been talking about this for the past few weeks, but the word appeared is talking about Jesus appearing as the grace of God in the person and work of Christ. And the word appeared is in an aorist passive, which means it's already been taken care of. When Jesus came once for all, just as we understand of the blood of Christ, once for all, when Jesus came, it was done. No longer do you have to sprinkle blood for a sacrifice or an atonement. Jesus came once for all. And when he did, he appeared, it was done. When he came here in his incarnation, it was done. It was already coming forth. It was already planned in eternity past, and it's coming in the present to the future. We have to think that way to know that we've been bought with a price for a purpose. And Jesus sets us free. And so that's the beauty of understanding the rescue, that he has chosen us for a purpose. Now, we're going to learn that as we move on, because here's where it says, and when we think of, some may look at this passage and say, wait a minute, that sounds like that could be universalism, that it just simply means that he's appeared and he's brought salvation to all people. No, because in the Greek, there is no article there, no definite article. When there's no definite article Then it reads different then. It says this, God's favor has appeared with saving power. So God has appeared through his son Jesus in his incarnate state with saving power. And those who trust in him or are chosen before the foundations of the earth are a special people to serve here on earth and lead others to Christ. That's a good work and that's something we need to be eager to do. And so he saves us. What does he save us from? What does he set us free from, it says that it it sets us free from even lawlessness. And lawlessness is simply this, that we, in the Old Testament, when they tried to keep the law to gain a righteous standing with God, they couldn't. We know in the New Testament, it says that keeping the law is a tutor to sin, that we can't. Why? Because what really meaning keeping the law means being perfect. And you and I are not perfect. We can't keep a perfect law. And therefore, the law is holy and it's perfect, Romans 7, 12, but yet we can't keep it. Therefore, Jesus had to be a curse for the law, and any lawless deed would not even come forth, meaning every lawless deed, everything that was said about, God's saying he's covered and he set us free from the bondage of sin. And so it's understanding that he's saying it. But he, thirdly, he wants to purify us. He wants to purify us. He wants to cleanse us. And when he wants to cleanse us, he wants to purify us. It's a ritual cleansing. But then it goes on to say this, for himself, a people, a special people. In the Greek, it means this, a very special status, chosen. So God purifies and cleans us for the purpose of being chosen to be used by him as a representative. We're to reflect God's glory. We're to reveal his character, and we're to represent him wherever we go. 
There's that representation. Even, even in Ezekiel, it highlights something very important. It says this. God spoke to his people. He said, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned with clean, and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. See, it's important to understand because too often, you know, we, we set in and understand that God has set us apart as a people of God. But maybe you're struggling. Maybe you don't understand this. Maybe you haven't experienced that God has called you for a special status, a special purpose. You don't understand that God's called you in a special place to reach someone who needs Christ. Maybe you're at work and you know that person is, is there and you just can't stand that person, but God has you there for a purpose. Maybe there's someone in your neighborhood. Maybe there's someone in your family. Maybe there's someone in this church. Maybe there's someone that for years you just couldn't get along and God's saying, I still want you to reach this person. God wants to use you in that way. He'll never disown you. If you're struggling to get there, he'll never disown you. Or maybe you're struggling because you think he will. Maybe you're wondering he, he'll disown you because you've done something so bad that this is the one, Lord. This is the one that I know you're not going to fix. And God's saying, I want to fix that. I want to work in your midst, but you got to allow me to do so. This is what, what, what he says. Even the author of Hebrews makes comment to this. Listen to this. He says, the author of Hebrews says, he entered once for all into the holy of places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For it is by the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons and with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's what he wants to do. He wants, to, he, wants, he wants us to be a people who don't live in dead works. He wants to purify us. He set us free from that. See, when we were living in our impulses, in our evil ways, in our evil thoughts, and when we were set in our own flesh and our cravings, we were living in a dead works. We thought it was good. I was doing good to someone else. I was kind to everyone else, but we couldn't do good enough for God. And so we were living in our dead works, and God's saying, I've cleansed you. I've set you apart. I've purified you so you could do good works. And I want you to be eager to do it. I want you to be zealous about it. I want you to look towards others and not yourself. I want you to live for the King of Kings and the Lord. The Father's crying out. He's saying, die to self and live for my son. See, that's what God is calling us to good works, but we must be eager. It's not just a matter of knowing about the truth, but living out the truth with a passion, with an excitement to say, God, thank you for considering me even though I'm not worthy. God's saying, I want to set you free, even in your sanctification. I want to set you free. He even says, John, the apostle said this. He said, but if you confess your sin, he is faithful, just will cleanse you from your sin and all unrighteousness. He'll cleanse you from your sin. And God wants to do that work. So the second question is, how should we do good, our capacity? Look with me at verse 12. He said, he's training us. What's training us? The grace of God. This word here in the Greek modifies the appearance of the grace of God, that, that verb there. 
So it's modifying, saying that the grace of God has come, Jesus has come, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's training us to do what? What's the training mean? It means this in the Greek, to assist in the development of a person's ability to make appropriate choices. It's to practice and be disciplined, correcting, giving guidance, instructing like an educator. If you're an educator, you're instructing, guiding, you're correcting, not rebuking because we don't want to rebuke. When I grew up, my father was a tough man to live for and live around. He would constantly rebuke me, but he didn't correct me. And when he rebuked me, I never thought I was good enough. Because I didn't know what was good. I didn't know what was the right thing to do. I was yelled at, screamed at, and then walked away. Never told me what to do right. It wasn't the yelling and the screaming that bothered me. I'd be happy in the Italian family. That's normal. But the thing is, is that you got to understand, we raise our voices when we're excited. We raise our voices when we're not excited. We raise our voices for everything. i got to tell my daughter, Rebecca, hey, honey, keep it down. I'm on the phone. Because she raises her voice. Then my son starts talking a little bit of Italian and a little bit of English. Hey, oh, hey. But what we do is when we're sitting there, it wasn't the yelling that bothered me. It was that my father never corrected me. And why I have found that God has blessed me with men of God who have become like father figures for me, correcting me and rebuking me in love. And God appointed those men around me, and I loved it because I didn't have a father who was doing that. I don't fault my father. But I would just have loved to have been told what to do right. And I think that's what Paul is saying here, that the grace of God, and God has done that to me. And that's what the grace of God, it tells us the negative things not to do, to, to, to refuse and not pay attention, to disown the ungodliness in my life or around me, and worldly passions, which is cravings. That's the word, again, the Greek for cravings. And to live... A life that is self-controlled. See, even 1 Thessalonians 2.10, it says, You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you as believers. Because when we live self-controlled, people see it. You know what the word self-control means? It means sober, sound, healthy, prudent. It's where we get the word deriving from another word in chapter 1. is hygiene, cleansing. Healthy, strong. It's conduct demonstrating good judgment. It's a self-controlled person that has sound doctrine, sound mind, sound living. It's the trilogy of discipleship. If you have sound doctrine, it leads to a sound mind, a sober mind. If it's sober mind, I'm going to live a sober living. And that's what it derives from, a sound doctrine. And what he's saying is that self-controlled is important here. Now, when one is accusing you of wrongdoing, Questioning your character or slandering you to another person, how do, you, how do you respond? Do you respond or you react? I mean, does that happen in the church? No. Doesn't happen in the church, right? Come on, help me out. Does it happen in the church? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. And God is saying this. Be self-controlled. Submitting, knowing, and understanding. You know, Paul had to go through that. Paul had to work through that. People were accusing him in 2 Corinthians, and the people around him, there were people who were following, working with him. All of a sudden, a false teacher came, and people started following the false teacher. But when the false teacher fell, those people were frustrated with the false teacher, and Paul was too, but Paul could have reacted. Instead, he responded. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he highlights that. 
by saying he didn't name the person. He told those people to pray for him. He says, if he's hurt you, pray for him. Paul didn't react. He responded. He was self-controlled. It was a situation where I was in a church 25 years ago as an associate youth pastor, 26 years old, starting the ministry, came out of Bible college, wasn't ordained yet. So the people in this church really wanted, a couple felt that if I wasn't ordained, I wasn't truly a pastor. So there was a guy in the church who wrote a four-page letter to the, to the board, and I was only there for three months, and he included me in that letter. And this Pastor Bruno guy, he's not even a pastor, started name-calling me, slandering me. He doesn't even know me. I didn't even talk to him but once. He's putting me down. I was like, chick, chick, chick. come here, let me talk to you. You know, come here, come here. Got a word. I got to talk to you. And then the guy will come out after we talked to him. No, no, we wouldn't do that. So what happened was my leaders, who were my youth leaders, they were on the board. They were upset. They came to a meeting that we had. And they were just, my, one of my best friends now was just frustrated. How dare him talk about you, Bruno? And I'm just listening to them talking back and forth. And I stood there and I said, you guys will be quiet now. I said, please be quiet. I said that in love. They said, why, why? I said, because you're doing the very same thing he's doing right now. You're slandering him. You're gossiping. You're putting him down. The Bible doesn't call us to that. He said, we will pray for him. We will ask God to change his heart. Four months later, the man embraced me, hugged me. We had a youth event. We needed money in the church. We were asking for, for people to, because 90% of the church, or 90% of my youth were outside of the church, and they needed money. We were doing all-nighters. He came over and gave me an envelope. He goes, here, Bruno, here's a check for one of your youth. Smiled, and you know what? After that, we became friends. I want to encourage you. Watch yourself. I said it last week as leaders and staff. We have to set that precedence. That's a good thing. We've got to be self-controlled. We, we are called, God is calling us to do that. You know, he's also calling us to live upright. The word upright means the quality of character, thought, and behavior correctly and justly and rightly. Living a, right that, or living a life that's upright. Second, and then thirdly, he says an outward behavior, or I'm sorry, godly. He's calling, it's like an outward behavior that needs to display what's going on in the inside. If God's changed your life, it should be displayed outward. The outward shows the inward. Inward shows the outward. And it's important to understand because godly behavior is simply godly manner. It's showing forth sound doctrine, sound mind, and sound living. And lastly, we sh there's the question, what good should we do? Well, look with me to chapter 3, verse 8. This is the theme of the book, by the way. Do good. This is the theme of the book of Titus. Chapter 3, verse 8 says this. The saying, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to do good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The word believe there is in the perfect active, which means in the perfect active is that something that already happened in the past that has continuous results. Well, we believe in what? In the person and work of Jesus Christ that has continuous results. And so we who are in Christ, sound doctrine, leads to a sound mind and sound living. We are in Christ. It's already established in Christ. We have everything we need. Now watch this now. The word careful means give sustained thought about something, think of, or be intent of. 
And then the word devote means to have interest, show concern, and give aid. Now watch, you put this all together. We who are in Christ, which God has established, has shown us that we must be intent in thinking about careful about showing concern and aid and show interest toward others. That's the good work. It's not a deed in and of itself. It's the heart behind the deed that says, I'm going to do a good work. That's why when it says, do what benefits others, here's where it says here, do what benefits others. If you see that right there, benefits others. This is the verse where it comes from in 1 Timothy 6, 8. It says, they are to do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. So we must do what benefits others, be generous in all that we do, meaning the word means in the Greek, liberally giving to others, selfish, selflessly, in, 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 in a selfless manner, recognizing what is, is yours is really God's. See, God was generous to send his son. So when we're selfless, God, we're showing forth the character of Christ. And when we show forth the character of Christ, that's a good thing. That's a good work. And when we show forth that generous character, then we're showing forth the sacrifice that he made for you and I. And when we do that, we're sharing with others. We have to share with others. You know, the word sharing there is koinia. It's that root word of koinia, meaning we are to give with, with everything we have. We're going to talk about this after Pastor Dennis preaches next week. On the 16th, we're going to start a new series called Community. And we're going to talk about that in, in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. You know, quickly, I'm going to end with this. Uh, this past week, I had... Um, a little thing that happened on Thursday night. We had the uh, radon inspection in our home for the new buyers in Pennsylvania. And uh, Thursday was my daughter's uh, birthday special day for Rebecca. We're sitting there. We're about to have cake. And my youngest daughter, Sophia, jumps up and goes, Dad, there's water downstairs. There's puddles of water. I'm like, okay. I said, where, honey? I'm trying to use where. She goes, right where I play with the whiteboard. We're downstairs. It's unfinished. We have the French drain around, and she leans a whiteboard, and the whiteboard's right underneath the water meter. I'm like, oh, the water meter's going. Now I got to fix that. Oh, man, went downstairs. Giuseppe, come on with me. Went downstairs, and Giuseppe goes, Dad, it's everywhere. I'm like, what? We see water everywhere because what happened was, by law, they have to put a ceiling around the French drains for the air on the radon, and they just put a foam piece, but the guy left it up too high, and it, what happened was it wasn't flowing out. So it brought up the water. We had mattresses there, two queen-set mattresses and a box spring twin. I'm waiting for those to go to the new house. And here, it bypassed the mattresses, which thankfully, but then it hit the box spring. And it was brand new because we have a bunk set, and I didn't need the box spring, so I kept it downstairs. Thankfully, I called the guy, but this is what I did. I just said, hey, man, I'm not angry, but I'm disappointed because you didn't inform me of this. Can you please come and see if you can take care of this? Because the people who are buying the house, I want this covered, and I need you to deal with this damage stuff. So he did. He came. He was very gracious. Came. We talked about it. He dealt with all of it. Afterwards, when he saw how I didn't react but responded, thankfully I responded because I could react. God, in his mercy and his grace, he asked me, he started asking me questions about Jesus. Started asking me questions about where I passed her. 
started asking questions because he, was a, he grew up Methodist and didn't know what church to go in the area. And I told him, dude, I'd love for you to go to this church. Told him about the church. And I said, I'd go with you. If I didn't have to preach in Maryland, I would sit with you for the first Sunday so you can get acclimated there. And he's like, thanks, Bruno. And it started a relationship. I'm going to actually try to reach out to him again and say, hey, dude, I want to talk to you. Did you make a decision on the church? And so it's important for us that we are self-controlled, godly, upright. It's not that I'm always that at that point, I, God gave me mercy and grace to respond rather than react. And through it, God was glorified. And, and that's what we have to do. So we're about to enter in. I want to pray for you as we're entering into our time of, of, of just going into communion. But I want to encourage you that as the team is coming up, this is what it's about, the truth of the word of God, the truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the communion table, the beauty of knowing that God loves us and he sent his son, the beauty of knowing that. And so I want to pray for you right now and ask that God would begin to prepare our hearts. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this gathering. We thank you for the fact that you have reminded us the importance of walking with you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for reminding us that we're to be zealous to do good works, and where does that derive from? It derives from sound doctrine, which leads to a sound mind and a sound living. It derives from your son, from the gospel. It derives from the fact that when we do understand and when you've changed us, then we could live a self-controlled life, a godly life. We can live a life that is upright because that's in the subjunctive move in the Greek and Lord it tells us that we can when we surrender and so Lord we thank you that you remind us to be selfless like Jesus benefiting others being generous and sharing with others God I just thank you because even the cross the way that Jesus himself died on the cross being mangled being whipped throwing a six-inch uh, six uh, thorn on his head, shoving it in his head, having to, for him to be lashed 40 times, where even a doctor today were saying that there were metal pieces and pieces of stone and even glass that was in that whip that was opening up his guts. And he was taking it for, for each one of us. He died for sin, Father. We know you sent him for that purpose. And the beauty of the cross is that although he suffered and he died, he rose from the dead. And we can celebrate that today. But Lord, we know that Jesus, you went on that cross for sin. You had to plant it. And when you did, Jesus, you had to die a brutal death for us. Father, we're so thankful. Thank you for allowing us the opportunity to benefit that. And thank you for giving us this opportunity to reflect on how awesome you are. So, Lord, we love you, and as we come into this time, may we reflect well and confess our sin today and say thank you for your incredible love for us. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. As we think about the elements of the body and the blood of Christ, we think about Jesus in Gethsemane, and we think about Jesus and how he had to suffer and die. He had to take a brutal death. We even have to understand, too, that it wasn't even, he had to give up his will to the Father in order to fulfill the plan. And to fulfill the plan means to bring forth the importance of what is being established here. I mean, even Jesus had to highlight that, but we know that he took a brutal death for, for you and I, and the body that was mangled. 
And we also understand, too, that when we're reminded of Gethsemane, I want to read it to you because it's important for what Jesus and his disciples were there. It says in, in uh, Matthew chapter 26, 36, And when Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And after talking with them, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful to the point of despair, even to death. Remain here. Watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face, praying, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said, Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It changed the second time around. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for his eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying to the words again, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, See, the hour's at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. See, this is why we have to understand that Jesus was willing, was a great thing, willing to die, suffer and die for you and I. It's a good thing. And if it's a good thing for him to do that, it's a good thing for us to be eager to do good works. And if it's eager for us to do good works, we understand that he not only was broken and mangled, he shed his blood. And there's life in the blood. And where there is blood in the shedding of the blood, there's redemption. And where there's redemption, there's a setting free, as we talked about. And where there's a setting free, there's forgiveness of sin. And when there's forgiveness of sin, that means that God and his demand of holiness has been met. And when we go before him now, he's forgiven us because of Jesus. When he sees us, he sees Jesus. And when he sees our sin, he sees Jesus. And when he sees that we've fallen down and we've done the, the unspoken sin, God says, I still see Jesus. Peekaboo, I still see Jesus because he's not hiding from us. And so we've got to understand that and recognize that the body and the blood that, we sh- that, we, that we're celebrating, I want you to take a moment. And as you are going to come up in a few moments, in a few minutes here, a few seconds here, we're going to ask you to grab those elements, bring them back and reflect on them. Is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone that could be, if you look in the mirror and you say, I need to forgive that person. Is that person in the mirror you? Do you need to forgive someone in your family? Do you need to forgive someone in this church? Do you need to forgive someone who you know if that person walked in this room, you would feel uncomfortable? I think that means you need to forgive that person. I want to encourage you to consider that. So as you go back and reflect on the bread and the blood and the body, we want to encourage you to take a moment and confess your sin. If you don't know Jesus, let, don't, don't, You don't need to be coming up here, the Bible says. But you can just sit at your your seat and you can just reflect. And if you need to know more about Jesus, we would love to share that with you after service. So I want to encourage you as the team is about to play some songs, this is going to be a time, an ample time for you to take the elements, to go back to your seat and to reflect on how awesome God is. I want you guys to do that. I invite you to do that.
Savior, I come, quiet my soul, remember, redemption's here, where your blood was spilled, for my ransom, everything I want.
to walk with you, Jesus, and feel your friends and know your near. I want to see you, Jesus, moving power and cast out fears. Honey, to reflected on that evening, the Last Supper, with the apostles, and Jesus was sitting there and talking to them, and Paul reflects on it so well in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and in the same way also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Together as a body, let's do that together. Father, we are so thankful that you are an incredible God who loves us. 
you were so generous to us. We have never, ever, and will never, ever deserve it. The fact that you would declare someone or something that is guilty, someone who's guilty, innocent, is mind-boggling. It makes no sense in our finite minds. But you and your infinite, the transcendent God that you are, desired to bring forth us near to you, imminent, you've made it possible what was impossible. You drew us to yourself because you're a relational God that loves us, who you are our greatest fan. You look at us and you're just excited. And even though we may not be excited about ourselves, you're saying, I can do a work in you. So Lord, I pray we are Grace Church. We want to see you do a work in your church. This is your church. These are your people. This is your message. This is your word. And I pray that today we will certainly be reminded of the importance of leaving here today desiring, zealous for good works because you are good. So, Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your son. And we pray that you would dismiss us with an excitement that says, God, show me this week where I need to do a good work. Bless us, Lord, this week. And bless us as a church that we can make an impact. We can make a stamp on this community for your honor and your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a great week.